I hope everybody's well tonight. Enjoyed the blizzard this morning. It's coming down pretty good, right? Yeah, it was. Pardon me? It was pretty. It was cold, too. I got to the hospital to be with Tony during his surgery, and when I got there, I looked down. I just grabbed a jacket and walked out the door. I thought I was grabbing a different jacket, and I looked at the one I had on, and it was a different it wasn't. It didn't match. Let's put it that way. I thought I can't wear that in the hospital, so I took the jacket off and left it in the truck and walked in. Well, by the time I got to the uh, entrance of the hospital, this was white. It was snowing so much I had to dust it off and go in. So it was coming down pretty good there for a while. Tonight we're going to return to Hebrews. So if you would just open your Bibles there. Um, I wanted to, um, Sunday, as you know, is Palm Sunday, and then the following Sunday is Easter Sunday, and I'm going to take those two Sundays off of this study. We'll put this on hold for just a couple of weeks while we um, consider Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and then I'd like to come back with James after that as we resume our study and finish up. So that's, I have a reason for doing it, and um, so... You'll, you'll bear with me in my folly, as Paul would say, and um, we'll just do a little bit more work in the book of Hebrews tonight. I hope you've had a good day. I hope it's been a good week for you. We will pray before we leave tonight for our prayer request, as we usually do, uh, but if you would, let's bow our heads and give thanks for the blessings the Lord has given us. Lord, you are a wonderful, wonderful Lord, and we're grateful, grateful for everything that you do for us. We praise you for who you are, our Creator, our God, the Everlasting One, with whom is no beginning, no end. We honor you tonight. We worship you. We understand that you're the Creator. We are your creation. You are the potter. We are the clay. We need you, and tonight, Lord, we honor you for who you are. You are you are the indispensable one for us. We must have you, and we honor you for your love and your power and your glory and for who you are. And, Lord, we just thank you for all you've blessed us with. All of us who are here tonight, every single one of us, we have been blessed. If we were to take the time... All of us could make a list of things for which we are thankful. Yes, you're a good God, and we love you tonight. Thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for putting in our hearts a desire for the very important things like the Word of God and being in your house. We appreciate that so much. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us tonight, help me as I lead this discussion and help us to have eyes that are open and ears that can hear and to be receptive to the truths that we will read about tonight in your word. Help us to understand how blessed we are to live in the days in which we're living. So guide our steps and our conversation and our thoughts, I pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
In just a few moments, we're going to take the time to read a passage in Hebrews. Before we do that, I want us to give attention to this really weird drawing that I've put on the board. Um, this is just a little diagram of the Old Testament tabernacle and or the temple. The temple was on the same um, um, design as the tabernacle was. It's just that the temple was a permanent structure. The tabernacle was a what? A tent. It was mobile. You could tear it down and move it. And the Levites could gather everything together and move to a different place and set it up again. And then the priesthood would come in. The priest would come in and, and do all the things that they did. So the tabernacle of the Old Testament was a tent. It was movable. Later, when they moved into the Promised Land, uh, it was David's desire to build a house for the Lord in honor of the Lord. And that is the temple. But it was, it was built on the same pattern, same design. Um, I want to stress that what you see on the board is not to scale. Um, I was a little bit crunched for time today, and as I was putting this on the board, and when I finished and I backed up, I thought, whoa, that's not right. So don't worry about the scale, okay? You'll get the idea. It'll, it'll be fine. Uh, but the scale of it is a little out of kilter. Um but we're going to just consider a few things about the tabernacle because the writer of Hebrews, as you remember me saying last week, whoever that was, uh, talks about it at great length in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to, we're going to read that and compare the Old Testament um, and the, the uh, significance of the tabernacle to Christ and what he did and how the two compare with one another. So, what we have on the screen is um, tonight is representative of the Old Testament tabernacle. Um, it was, as you read in the Old Testament, it would have been surrounded by a perimeter on the outside that was also set up. And the inside of this would be called the tabernacle area, inside the, the wall or the fence that what they would have constructed. And there's really quite a bit of significance here that I want us to, to get in our minds. Do you remember who gave the design for the tabernacle? Anybody? God did. God spoke to Moses and said, you build this according to the pattern that I show you. And so God gave the instructions as to how this was to be done. I would say that was significant, wouldn't you? It wasn't Moses' idea to do it this way. It was God's idea to do it this way. And God said, this is the way I want you to do it. And then um, as Moses did that, and the Lord gave him reasons why and so forth. And I want us to look at some of those things and sig the significance of it. Now, when you look at a map, any map, you're looking at this map on a sheet of paper, where is the east on the map? It's on the... The other right. Okay. So I'm, I'm just going to put an E here to remind us that this is east. What significant thing happens every morning from the east? Thank you. So we'll just put the sun up here. 
The sun is beginning to rise and come up on the east. Now, the Bible says that when they set this tabernacle up, they're always to, always to have this gate there facing toward the east. Isn't that a strange requirement? How many have heard about the eastern gate? We sing a song about that, right? Okay, the, the gate was supposed to face the east. Now, if you'll think with me just a moment, where were the children of Israel before they were the children of Israel under Moses? They were in Egypt. Does anybody know, anybody ever heard the name Ra? What is Ra? No, but that's a good guess. It, it, it's a god, uh, an Egyptian god, Ra, the sun god. It was very important to the Egyptians. They worshipped the sun, and the sun god was Ra, R-A, or R-E-H, spelled both ways, Ra. Now, isn't it interesting that the Lord said when they came out of Egypt, and he gave them the pattern for the mount, and the gate was to be toward the east, so when they come in the gate like this in the east every morning, where is the sun? Behind them. Forget that. The imagery is you forget that and you focus on what's ahead of you. Are you with me? So when they were to come into the tabernacle, this is supposed to be a gate, by the way. And you know I'm not artistic, so we dealt with that years ago. They come through the gate, and, and the first piece of furniture or equipment or the thing that you notice first when you've come through the gate besides this open courtyard here, incidentally, in, in the confines of this um, fence or wall in this tabernacle area, the only people who were allowed in here were the Levites and the priests. Nobody else could come in. They had to watch from the outside. And observe what was going on. So as the priest or the Levites came in, the first thing that they would have confronted was, was something here. Anybody want to guess what that is? Good guess, but no. Remember something in the Bible had four horns? Anybody remember? The altar, the brazen altar, or the altar of sacrifice, had four horns. You know what a horn on a cow is, right? It was kind of like that. It, was, it would have been made out of metal, horns going on four corners, and they would hang meat on those horns and then offer it to sac for sacrifices. So if you would notice here, uh, well, you won't notice until I draw it, will you? Uh, how many know what a grade is? Like a grill with... Okay, there was a grate that was in this altar and they'd build a fire in it and then they would put the animals up on this grate and they would burn it. You've heard of burnt offerings and all kinds of offerings that were cooked on the fire or burnt on the offering. You had the, you had the altar that was built, the horns on the corners, the horns of the altar you'll read about in Scripture and the grate there. And the very first thing that they would have done when they came in would be come over here and, as I described on Sunday morning, the taking the life of the sheep or the lamb. They would have slaughtered an animal and it would have been offered here on this altar. You didn't have any right to go any farther than right here until you did that first. The 
this is the uh, this is the brazen altar or the the altar of sacrifice. It's called different things. Altar of sacrifice. So they would come in and offer that sacrifice here. That's a kind of messy thing, right? The, the slaughtering of animals and the whole process. So, and, and the lesson here is that God requires, the wages of sin is, so God required a sacrifice. Before we even have a right to approach him, he, he required that sacrifice. So they come and offer this sacrifice on the brazen altar, the priests do. And then after they do that, they can progress to the next place. Teresa, and what is this? <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. It's called a, a laver, L-A-V-E-R. Um, it's also referred to in Scripture as the sea of glass. Why would it be called the sea of glass, you think? It might have been six or eight or twelve feet across with water in it. So as you looked at it, it would look like glass, wouldn't it? It would shine. So it was called the laver or the sea of glass. And and what did they do there, Teresa? Wash their hands. Wash their hands and their feet and anything else that was dirty. Because it was a place designed for purification. So they offered the sacrifice here. Then they would come to the laver and they would wash their their hands and their elbows and their arms and their legs and their feet or whatever as they then progressed onto the um, tabernacle proper. And these uh, squirrely lines here represent um, a veil or a curtain. So there would have been a veil here with a way to get through, of course, the, the first place they would come through. And what do you see as you look to the right when you come through the veil there? Anybody know what that is? A what? Oh, you're hot. Ding, 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 ding. Table of what? Not yet. Table of show bread. Table of show bread. Or the bread of presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Bread of presence. So on this table of show bread, there were 12 loaves of bread. Two rows of six. And every Sabbath day, which day of the week was the Sabbath? Every Sabbath day, they would bring in fresh baked 12 loaves of bread to put on the table of presents or the table of showbread. And then only the priest, of course, could partake of that bread. But it represented, if there's 12 loaves there, what do you think that represented? 12 tribes of Israel. So it represents all the people of God who the priests are coming to um, um, petition God for. Uh, to pray for and so forth, the table of showbread, 12 loaves there. And then across to the left when you came to, you would have seen, well, let me write this down so we don't lose it. This is the table of showbread. The, like the, uh, King James Version, the original King James would be S-H-E-W, bread. But a show bread or presence, it represents um, the people there. Table of show bread. 
And this, did somebody tell me what that was? I didn't hear. The menorah or lampstand. Absolutely. It's the golden lampstand. What was the deal with the golden lampstand? Anybody know? How often did they burn that thing? Constantly. Yeah. Remember, can you remember anybody in the beginning of the New Testament who had something to do with keeping the lamps burning? Yeah, there's, there's a man's name, though. What about John the Baptist's father, who was a priest and went in to do his duties by course? It was his turn, his schedule to go in, and he did that, and he had the angel. Uh, I think the Bible tells us that he went in to take care of this business here with the golden lampstand. So it, it, it burns on olive oil, of course, and it's tended to morning and evening to make sure that it's always burning. And then, and it represents, and we studied this from the prophets and the book of Revelation, the, the oil in the lamp signifies what? What's the oil symbolized in the scripture? The Holy Spirit. The oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit in Scripture quite often in different places. So you, you've got the oil being poured into this lampstand, and then you've got the light and the flame burning there. Um, a, a wonderful visual of the power and the presence of God there. And then you come to this piece of um, furniture here. What do you think that is? Altar. What kind of altar? Altar of what? Anybody know? Incense. Altar of incense. Uh, what's incense? Yeah, some that smells good, theoretically, but you know, <laughs> most of the times incense I've heard, I, I smell I didn't care much for. But theoretically it is. But you know what? So, let me tell you something about this incense. Well, first of all, let me see if you can tell me something about that incense. Anybody know where it came from? No. If you go back to the Old Testament and, and study this um, in the books of the Bible, like, let's see, it's Genesis, it'd be Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It'll be scattered out through those books of how all this was supposed to operate. The Lord actually gave them the recipe on how to make this. You put these ingredients in it. And this is a special incense that can only be used right here in the tabernacle. And if you use any of it, for any other purpose, it'll cost you your life. And the Lord says, this is the way you make it. This is what you put in it. And this is the only place it's supposed to be used. So I would say it was a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord if it wasn't anybody else, right? Because of the 
the ingredients that are in it. So we have the altar, altar of incense here. And so there was, um, <coughs> excuse me, there was incense burnt on this altar. And there were, there were two horns on this altar because at certain occasions, special occasions, there would also be a sacrifice of an animal on this altar as well. And I think, I think uh, Annette mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And even the Bible talks about with both of these altars, the smell and the aroma of the fat, for instance. The Bible talks a lot about the fat being burnt and that being a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord as these sacrifices were made. So um, this is right in front of the curtain or the veil. There's, a, there's one item, and I'll go ahead and mention it because you may catch this. And, and then I'm not trying to hide it from you. I just don't, I hadn't had time to check it out. It seems to me, as I read our scripture tonight, it seems like to me that the Bible indicates maybe that this was here. But every drawing I can find for, from it in different places, it's always over here. So I'd have to go back and study that. And I don't know that it's worth taking the time to study it because I really don't care where it was. We know it was there. Uh, whether it was on this side of the veil or that side of the veil, it could be smelled either way, right? So it doesn't really matter. But the altar of incense was here. And then, here's that second, here's the first entrance. This place right here, anybody know what this place was called? Forget this part to the left of the marker. What was the part to the right of the marker called? This whole place is known as the tabernacle. This area right here is known as the, pardon me? Holy of Holies or Holy Place. Ah. I'm stuttering. Holy, holy. Or the holy place. That's what this is known as, the holy place or the holy of holies. And priests came in here to do their um, service every day. This area was used regularly. And then, anybody want to guess what this is? The curtain. What's it called? V-E-I-L. Is that it? The veil. It was a heavy curtain. And then this place. Running out of room. What was this place called? Most holy place. Holy of holies or the holy place here. The most holy place. Now, boy, that's an ugly sea. Still ugly, but... Okay. The most holy place. Tell me about what happened there. 
Well, before we do that, let's talk about what, what this is. Ark of the Covenant. Thought I had plenty of room. The Ark of the Covenant. Um, it has some other names as well. Um, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Ten Commandments. The two tablets were in the in the Ark of the Covenant. What else? Aaron's rod that budded was in there. What else? Manna, a pot of manna, and a golden pot of manna. By the way, uh, now it's interesting that there was a golden pot of manna that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Why is that kind of strange? Absolutely. The Lord, when he told them to gather the manna, they could only gather enough for one day. If they gathered more, it would breed worms. It would rot. And so only on, only on the day before the Sabbath could they gather more. They could gather two portions, and it would last an extra day. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the Lord tells Moses to take a pot of manna and put it in here, and it didn't breed worms there. It was preserved there. And they just kept it on and on and on. So, as you read that, uh, and, and see, incidentally, again, I'm not an artist, but, but what is this on top of that? Whew, you got a good imagination. <laughs> now, you just know the Bible. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was a chest, like imagine a big cooler, except it was gold, very elaborate, very expensive, got covered with gold. On top was a lid called the mercy seat. It was just a lid that went across the top. And on top of the mercy seat, there was angels crafted out of gold. Um, they have two wings each. They had wings that met in the center like this with their with one wing, and the other covered their bodies like this. So their wingtips met in the middle on either end. Here's an angel. Here's an angel with their wings going toward the center. And that that area under where their wings met, the tip of their wings met, is called the mercy seat under the wings there. Now, who could go in here? The high priest, only the high priest. Could he go in there anytime he wanted? How often could he go in? Once a year. Once a year. So this... this this uh, area here didn't get a lot of traffic, did it? If the high priest could only go in once a year into that place and make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, here's the Bible doesn't record what I'm about to tell you, but historic Jewish history records this, that the, the priest would come through and they would do what they needed to do here, and then they would come to the laver and they would wash their hands and wash their feet and then they would head this direction, but by the time they got here, they had already soiled their feet, right? Because they're walking on the ground. So Jewish history says they built a ramp to go from here to here so that, that once they washed their feet and their hands, they could walk on this ramp without getting their feet dirty to get in here and take care of the business they needed to take care of. Now, the high priest was supposed to do everything inside this room and that only once a year 
And if anybody else went in, or if the high priest went in here to make atonement for the sins of the people, and his heart wasn't right, if he'd sinned, if he was unclean, and then he came in here to offer for the sins of the people, and he hadn't done it the right way, what happened to him? Does anybody remember? <laughs> That's a good way to put it, Moran. He was a goner. He would die. He would be stricken right then. Well, who's going to go in there and get him out if, he, if he's a goner? That's exactly right. The Jews devised in their mind a way to take care of this. You remember in the Old Testament, the, the high priest was dressed in these robes, and around the hem of the garment were bells and pomegranates. The, the pomegranates, when they're dried, have seeds in them, and it's like a maraca. Okay, so when you put these bells and pomegranates around the robe, everywhere he walks, he's jingling and, and making a noise, right? So if he comes back in here, and he stays for about 30 minutes, and you don't hear any jingling, you can only assume he's a goner. Well, you're not going to go in and get him, are you? No, so they would tie a rope to his ankle when he went in, so that if he was unfortunate enough to hadn't taken his duty seriously, he could be dragged out by the ankle with the rope that was on his feet. Now, there again, you won't read that in Scripture, but you read it in Jewish history. Okay? Now, before we move on from this, remember, uh, have a flashback to Sunday, if you would, about all the, all the animals that were offered on these altars. I wish I had taken time to look up on the day that the temple was dedicated. There were hundreds of thousands of animals that were dedicated. I don't know about you, but it makes me say, Wow. Hundreds of thousands of animals. The Bible, the Bible records how many sheep, how many goats, how many cattle. It was, it was unbelievable. And it was a big offering of meat to the Lord, a big sacrifice that was made on that particular day. And this went on for years and years and years and years. And when, even when Jesus came along, they were still doing this in the temple, right? Because Jesus went in one day and overturned the tables of who? Money changers, those that sold doves and had sacrifices there. It had turned, I'm getting off base here, but I, I think um, it looks like some of you are finding this interesting, so we'll just chase this rabbit for a little bit, okay, before we leave. Um, Jesus went into the temple area when all of this became permanent and found them. It was like the state fair out there. People were laughing and talking and joking and having a good time. And there was buying and selling going on and they were just having a big time. And Jesus was very disappointed, right? He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. For all nations. And you've made it a den of thieves. And all they were doing was buying and selling. You know the money changers. They weren't just changing at a dollar for four quarters, were they? They had to make about double. You know, they were getting rich. And, and the people who sold doves, they were doing like the drug industry is doing now. We're talking about it today. Probably make a pill for less than $3 and selling it for four or 500 a pill. It's, it's crazy. And that's what's happening here. 
they were taking advantage of people, and Jesus said, not in my house. We're not going to have it. And so he did away with that. Um, here's, here's something I want you to follow. Here's a point I think that's very interesting. When Jesus was walking the earth and going to the temple along with Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples, and the temple stood in Jerusalem, and in the temple there was a holy place and there was a most holy place. And how do we know that there was a curtain and a veil? Absolutely. When Jesus was crucified, the veil was rent from top to bottom, right? The Bible says, so that would have been this veil here. It was just shredded and torn so that people who were out here could see what was in there. Do you know what was in there? Nothing. Nothing was in there. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't in there. From 586 B.C. on, the Ark of the Covenant was gone. They didn't even know where it was. We don't know where it is today. Movies have been made about it, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark and so forth. So, in the time that, that Jesus was going to the temple, this has, this has always amazed me. With all of this that's going on, on and on and on, all the ritual and all the things that are happening, the very place where God dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant wasn't even there. It was an empty building as far as the, the visible presence of God was concerned. It had been lost. You can, you can research that. For hundreds of years, it had been gone, captured. So nobody knows who had, who's got it. To this day, I don't guess anybody knows who's got it except the good Lord and where it is. It may be somewhere in Israel, it may be in Jerusalem, it may be hidden somewhere underground. They may find it someday, I don't know. But I know that it was not in the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place. Now, that was pretty significant, I think, then, when the Bible says that the veil to the temple was rent in twain, to me, exposing the emptiness of all of this. Because there was a better way now, right? With Christ on the cross having given his life, he replaced all of this anyway, which is now what we're about to read. Hebrews chapter 9. Then indeed, Hebrews chapter 9, then indeed even the first covenant, what's the first covenant? The law. It's the law. And all this we're reading about here. The Old Testament covenant and the law and, and all those things. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. Do you, what's this? Do you see all the divine service that was happen here, happening here? As people were worshiping God in these ways that God had prescribed? The divine service or service to the divine. People were doing that here under the old covenant. And in the earthly sanctuary, which this was on earth, right? 
Sometimes we get lost in the language and it just doesn't make sense when really it's very plain. It's talking about the service that took place in here, the offering of sacrifices, the building that had been constructed. It says even the first covenant, yes, it had ordinances as a divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, which is right here, the first part, in which was the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second part, or behind the second veil right here, it says, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or the most holy place, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables, the tablets of the covenant. See, you all did good. See, when you were, you didn't even know you were getting ready to read it, did you? And you were firing away. Did a good job. Now notice, notice he's just described this place right here. The first part and the second part. And all that we've described, he's describing it right here. He says in verse 4, Verse 4, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, which we talked about. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6, now when these things had been thus prepared... The priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. In other words, all these things... The offering of the sacrifices here. And I'll go ahead and share with you that the Bible talks about the offering of sacrifices. We'll read this in a moment. I'll tell you what. Somebody read it for me now. Hebrews 10.4. For it is not possible that Thank you. So what does that tell us about all these animals that are offered here? It didn't take away their sin. It did not. And what about coming in here and washing in this labor? Did that really clean you up on the inside? Did it do anything inwardly for you? Not a thing. And then you come over here to the showbread and the lampstand and the altar of incense. All of this only... The Bible says that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. All of these things were designed by God to kind of point in the right direction, so that when Jesus came, we would recognize who he was and why he came. I used to think that 
a schoolmaster was a teacher. I, I don't know where I got that, but I used to think that the schoolmaster was a teacher. You know, he's the guy that had the ruler in his hand or yardstick in his hand, and he'd do like this. If you didn't do it just right, he was a schoolmaster. But that's not what a schoolmaster is. And if, if you look at in that context that it's used, in those days, a schoolmaster was a servant in the household whose job it was to take the children and carry them to school where they could learn. A schoolmaster was basically somebody. He's the bus driver. <laughs> he's to get the kids where they can learn. That's who he was. Not the teacher himself, but to get them where the teacher was. And that's exactly, that's exactly what the law does for us with Christ. The, the law is not the goal for us. The law is the school bus, so to speak, that gets us to where we can recognize when we see Jesus what all this really means. And so we continue reading now. And it can't do anything for you. The, the law, the, the sacrifices, you can, you can sacrifice a million sheep. It's not going to change your heart one bit. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. Amen? So then the Bible says in verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, listen to this, but with His own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling of the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. We already read a while ago why all these sacrifices couldn't do anything for your conscience, your mind, your heart. Couldn't do anything for you. But Jesus comes. He, he's not only able to wash you on the outside, He washes you on the inside. He changes you through and through. So the Bible says in verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, He is the mediator of the what covenant? The new, we're changing gears here. We're going from the old covenant now to the new covenant. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, his death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Verse 16. Y'all still with me? For where there is a testament or a will, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament or a will is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood 
For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. We all know there was a lot of blood in the old covenant, right? Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Verse 23, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. In other words, all these things right here, look at this. All these things are just copies. They're just representative. They're just shadows of the real matter here. Verse 23, It was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these things here, that we, we learn from these things. But the heavenly things themselves, the reality is going to be pictured for us with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, Verse 26, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. We've got to keep reading. If anybody has a comment or question, you can just yell at me a little bit. Don't yell, just say, I got a question. <laughs> or a comment. Chapter 10 now. I want to go through verse, uh, ooh, if we got time, verse 24. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. Can a shadow hurt you? No. A shadow can't hurt you. Can a I start saying, can a shadow help you? Well, it can if the sun's in your eyes. But you know, it, a shadow can't do anything to you. It's, it's perception. It changes. So the Bible says in verse 1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never. Would you say never? never. The law can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect can't happen verse 2 for then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins therefore he when he came into the world he said sacrifice and offering you did not desire you didn't you weren't interested in that, really, those animals. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 8. Previously saying, 
sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and the offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, the law, that he may establish the second, grace. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, listen to this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. Remember what he's been saying several times before, that it was impossible for any of these sacrifices to change a man's conscience, to change him on the inside, right? Now he says in verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Just five more verses. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And it's not talking about right here, is it? Mm -mm. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, who is Jesus himself, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See the, see the imagery going back to the old covenant and relating it to Christ in the new? Uh, it goes on to say, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he, is, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but it's, it's not all about us. It's about the other people. How we live, how we act, how faithful we are or how faithful we're not has an effect on the rest of the body. Amen? Whew. That was a lot of talking in 50 minutes. Anybody have any comments or questions? When you talk about the veil, um, I, I thought that that veil, when Jesus rent the veil in twain, that, that he fixed it so they didn't have to go through the high priest anymore. They could just have that direct contact with God ourselves. That is true. And what this is saying, when, the, when this veil is rent in twain, it exposed... 
the inadequacies of this whole system. You know what I mean? I mean, if you open the door expecting there to be... Well, remember the, remember the Wizard of Oz? And when, when Dorothy finally got to where the wizard was, she found out there was no wizard. Right? And it's kind of like it, when this veil is rent in twain, and then you can see in here, there's not even a, a Ark of the Covenant in there, and the presence of God is not there. It is empty, which is what all this is. When it comes to changing your life, it's empty. Because Jesus is the only one. Every bit of this was a, a blueprint and a plan to try to help us recognize Jesus when he came. And I might say that if you, if you observed all these things and kept the commandments and did what you were supposed to do, I think that's what the Bible means when it's talking about all these people who did that are saved. But they're not saved because of this. They're saved because of all that this points to, which is Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives life forever, right? And we even read that phrase in there. That it's very true. Even even before this, it's very true. Even before this, they were always making an idol out of everything. I was they did, but you know, there again, by the same token, is it not true that a lot of them were conquered by enemies? But the Bible says the Lord sent the enemy to do it. So the sovereign God is in control moving things and, and manipulating history or causing history to happen as it's pleasing. He's sovereign. So he causes things to come about so that his purposes are realized. But up to that point, Pastor Ron, did these people believe that the high priests forgave them of their sins or purified them or something? I, mean, I, I think with the understanding that, that they had, there was a lot of them who served that faithfully and... And like I say, um, respected that and were obedient to that. But here's the thing. If you have to keep doing it every year, over and over and over, you know it's not changed you, right? When Jesus came, he did something for us that changes us. We don't have to... He did. He did. Absolutely. And they were being obedient when they did it. But so many times they would turn these things. As a matter of fact, everything the Jews did, it seems like they turned it into idolatry and tradition and a show. It, it wasn't real heartfelt change. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1? Isaiah was actually, Isaiah was speaking for the Lord. And he said to them, he says, with your lips you honor me, but your hearts are far from me you're not really living for me like you said. It's a show. It's a tradition. It's a form of godliness um, with no power, I might add, to really change you. That all comes about when the reality comes, and that's Christ, to fulfill every bit of this. Absolutely. Very good. It is finished. 
Absolutely. Very good. Certainly true. Anybody else? Ronnie? For us, it's easy to see it. But I imagine in those days, it'd be hard for the Jews to go from something tangible they could see and touch to something intangible. Oh, it is. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it, does it not take a leap of faith now to do that? Which is why the next chapter, chapter 10, is the faith chapter. Which says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which were visible. Uh, verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it's a, it's a, it's a step of faith for all of us to, to go to Christ and allow him to work in our hearts. And, and absolutely transform our lives. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's all they could do until it was time to... Exactly, until Jesus came... And um, absolutely, yeah. Just remember, New Covenant, New Testament, Old Covenant, Old Testament. The word covenant means testament; they're interchangeable. So when Jesus said, "This is the New Testament in my blood," he's saying, "This is the New Covenant in my blood." Whereas this covenant had to do with the blood of animals. The new covenant has to do with the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You said that right. We all just strike out singing, What Can Wash Away My Sins? But we're going to wait and do that Sunday on Palm Sunday. Anybody else? Thank you for coming to Bible study tonight. Uh, today, as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, Tony had surgery. For his back, he's doing well, should come home tomorrow. And so I'd like for us to pray for him, though. I think the doctor told him that after that surgery, he would be pain-free. Now, of course, he's not pain-free right now because he just had surgery. And so there's some discomfort there. He texted me earlier and said, there's some discomfort, but I'm doing well. I'll be going home tomorrow. I think it would be a wonderful thing if the Lord would, would just take that away from him in a couple of days, and he'd just be a new man as far as his back is concerned. And so let's, let's just pray that the Lord would do that. we got witnesses right here who know that God answers prayer. So let's just, uh, let's just believe that. Um, Dexter was sharing with me before. Sorry, is it this Friday? This day after tomorrow, Jessica will be having her second back surgery in about a month. So let's remember Jessica that the Lord would minister to her. You know, the past in Virginia, his prayer uh, real bad for some stones in some bad place. Okay. Anybody else? I had found out last Wednesday that he has a degenerative spine. Well, he's actually dying. Though I told him that happens when you get older. It'll be okay. But he's on medication and he's just like, 
My brother-in-law died in Jackson. Okay. His wife on Friday. Still got rid of some kids. Okay. Okay. Um, I found out um, Victor Gonzalez is 21. He's working near Myrtle Beach. Um, I found him up the road. I uh, had a um, construction accident. Uh, lost a leg and a kidney, and he's in Preston. Going to be moved to Atlanta. Um, and then next week or so, he'll do a transplant of intestines. Um, I think his family's coming around too, but um, I just found that out in the last week. Okay. Who's his former Miss Um, she's doing well. She's doing well. The baby's having some struggles, but uh, but she's doing well uh, as far as I know at this point. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, stand with me and let's let's pray together. And I'm I'm absolutely convinced that the Lord hears our prayers. Amen. So let, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we are so thankful for your faithfulness to us. We pray that you would minister and move and work. Oh, Lord, how awesome you are. You're a healer. You're our provider. The Bible tells us you are. You tell us to cast our care on you. So, Lord, I just pray for each of these needs. Lord, every single one of them whose names have been called tonight, I plead the blood of Jesus over their lives. I'm asking that you would minister to them healing and health and relief. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to these who are facing surgeries. Oh, God, please use this. Please use this to bring relief and healing in their lives. Minister to these, I pray. For those who've already had surgery, Lord, help their bodies to heal speedily and properly. Minister to them, O Lord. Lord, for those who are suffering in any way, Lord, several needs have been shared tonight of different varieties. We know that you're a healer. We know that you hear our prayers tonight. We don't have to inform you or tell you who they are. You know who they are. You know what their problems are. You can explain it, and you can heal it. So I pray that you would minister to these individuals tonight. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful for your mercy and grace in our lives. So meet the needs of these whose names have been called tonight, we pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you tonight. Amen. Amen. You'll be getting a call, Lord willing.